The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Hello and welcome to the edition. Each week, we talk about some of the most important and intriguing issues from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Nara Prendergast. This week, how can the West fight back against China's economic bullying? And are Mormons misunderstood? Finally, what's wrong with being spiritual but not religious? First up, nine Brits have now been sanctioned by China for spreading what they call lies and disinformation about human rights abuses against Uyghur Muslims. In this week's magazine, our political editor Jane Forsyth says the West needs to unite against China. To explain, he joins me now alongside Ian Duncan-Smith, the Tory MP and former party leader who was targeted by the sanctions. James, in your piece in this week's magazine, you say that the West now needs a collective response to China's economic bullying. What exactly would you like to see happen? So I think what is needed is some kind of thing along the lines of a kind of NATO for trade to ensure that there is a collective Western response when China attempts to pick countries off one by one. I think we've seen the way that China turned on Australia, for example, after Australia called for an independent inquiry into the origins of coronavirus. Australia has a very considerable trade relationship with China. And China essentially started saying, oh, you can't export meat to China from Australian abattoirs. It put tariffs on Australian wine. And I think China would have thought twice about these measures if it had known that this would have drawn a response from dozens of other countries. And I think the West is still in a position where if it acts collectively, it can check China. But if it doesn't act collectively, it's going to get picked off one by one. And I think that, you know, within uh, 50 years or so, you will end up in a China-dominated world. And I think that will be a very uncomfortable place for almost every Western country because of the sheer values differences between the, the Chinese Communist Party and the Western world. And China's also turned against you. Last week, you were one of 13 people in institutions who were sanctioned by the Chinese government. Can you explain to listeners what happened and, and what the response has been over the past week? Well, this has been a long time coming. If we go right back to the early part, well, at the end of uh, 2019, just after the government got elected, and then January, February, uh, I was one of a few people that were campaigning against the uh, inclusion of Huawei in the 5G system. And at the time, the government was going to have none of it. And so we were uh, a smaller group, made a lot of points, slowly moved the government across. So by about May, June of that year, Prime Minister admitted that they couldn't have them in and that the programme has changed. During the course of that, we also started raising the issues around uh, China's abuse of, uh, of human rights inside China. It started originally, actually, funnily enough, when we got talking about the plight of the Falun Gong and then some of the Christian minorities. And then it got bigger as we got more evidence of what was happening in uh, in Xinjiang uh, with the Uyghur, which is so redolent of what had been happening in Tibet. And then I got heavily engaged in that uh, more and more and set up an organisation called IPAC, Inter-Parliamentary Alliance on China, 
that's now got two left members of parliamentarians left and right in 20 countries now and membership inside those countries. And that has also infuriated the Chinese who've attacked the site endlessly and threatened all sorts of people on it. So this was no surprise to me that after the debates on genocide that we were trying to get the government to move to get a, a statement around genocide in Parliament, that we were eventually going to be hit once the government put the Magnitsky sanctions in and we'd been encouraging them to do that. Uh, I just wondered why it took them so long, really. And, and what exactly do these sanctions mean and, and are you worried about them? Well, you know, like everything else, we've been under attack from <coughs> Chinese uh, cyber forces <laughs> for a little while now. So I don't suppose that will change. In fact, uh, just yesterday, the IPAC site went down, had a, a denial of service attack, which has to be pretty well organised because it takes a lot of capacity to do that. It's now up and running again. So what are the threats? I don't know. I mean, we're banned from going to China and we're banned and we're told we can't, you know, our assets are all frozen. I don't have any assets in China. And I wasn't planning to go to China, so the immediate threat is small, but it's an indication of direction of travel. And as James said, you know, Australia's been under the cosh, Australian politicians have been under the cosh. We, one by one, all been picked off, and my answer to this is the government's got to act in a leading role now to get the whole of the free world to come together to recognise the real threat. James, you note in your piece that China seems to be becoming sort of more openly combative. What do you think that suggests? So, I mean, I think this is a fascinating question. You know, uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping famously said that China should hide its capabilities and bide its time. We then had peaceful rise. Uh, under President Xi, this has changed quite dramatically. China has become much more assertive. And I think since COVID, in particular, China has become very bellicose in its language and its rhetoric. And I, I think the question is, is what is causing this? And I think this emphasis on the, the, nation, the fact that the Chinese government keep playing the nationalist card quite as much as they do, I think suggests that they have some worries. Now, we always knew that the Chinese regime, you know, its legitimacy at home is essentially underpinned by delivering considerable amounts of economic growth every year. I think COVID has interrupted that, which is one reason why there is this renewed emphasis on nationalism. But I also think there's a combination of concern about their own legitimacy at home and also, I think, a, a belief that the West is divided and that COVID had actually ended up accelerating the process by which China will become the world's largest economy and the like. And so I think there is a kind of confidence there, which I think is kind of perhaps dangerously misplaced about, for example, you know, China's ability to pressure Taiwan and the US's inability to stand up for that and the like, which is going on. And I think the point I would say is that China's made a tactical misstep in that China had a diplomatic success at the end of last year when it got the EU to sign an investment treaty with China before the new US administration came in. It kind of carried on this idea of dividing the West. I think the, the fact that China has sanctioned five MEPs from four different political groups in the European Parliament now makes it quite unlikely that that treaty gets ratified by the European Parliament. If that doesn't happen, I think that makes a coordinated Western economic response to China more likely. I mean, that's something that, you know, the UK hosting the G7 this year in Cornwall in June, the UK should be using the G7 to say, look, right, China is not playing by the rules of WTO. What does the West do as a collective act of response? And James writes that there's still a chance to shake off our economic reliance on China. I mean, do you think that's the case? And do you think that enough is being done to shake off our reliance? Uh, well, the first answer to that question is yes, I think it is. It's not too late. We've left it quite late, but I think it's not too late. Uh, I agree with James, in this sense that uh, that China China has abandoned uh, uh, the whole diplomatic approach to to drawing money into the China. They've 
President Xi changed everything 10 years ago. His arrival led to a much more abrasive, much more dictatorial process in their relations around the world. And they've taken for granted the view that they have of the West, that the West is weak, the West is greedy, and the West will do anything, therefore, to uh, stay trading with China. That's their view. Their view is that nobody in the free world is going to change that relationship because it, it costs too much. And they've been very clever about that, investing in countries like the UK enormously, Project Kowtow, which was the original golden, you know, uh, I never know whether it's golden decade or golden era that was announced out, as was nicknamed Project Kowtow, for the very simple reason that it almost became a case of we will turn a blind eye to anything that happens, providing we get a lot of money coming in. So there's uh, nuclear power investment, huge problems over, you know, even wind power stuff. Batteries. We're rushing to batteries at the moment uh, and uh, electrical power, which may or may not be the exact future. But who produces most of the batteries in the world? The Chinese do. Who owns 90% of the rare earth materials? That would be China. They own those. They use what is essentially child labor in many cases in Africa, a massive abusive process. We can't make these computers that we're using, the telephones that we use, and we can't make batteries without things like lithium. Most of that is owned by China. So whether we bring production back over here, we're still going to be on bended knee if we're not careful to that process. So there's a whole challenge for us. It's not too late, but we need to stop that. We need to start pushing back and saying we're going to bring a lot of this smart manufacture back. We can do a lot of stuff between us in the West. We're still ahead in microchip technology, way ahead of them, good 10, 12 years ahead of the Chinese, even though they've tried to copy everything in sight. But we've got to start now. And it's the economic point, which again, I agree with James, Bit by bit by bit, they need to grow by 5.5% a year. Otherwise, they're shrinking. And if they shrink, their 500 million middle class start to question what is the point of the trade-off between human rights and profits. If you don't have the profits, it's just a bad trade-off. So these sort of things are how you bring pressure on them. But we've got to do it quickly. James, do you think in the next decade we're going to see the West being more aggressive towards China? I hope you will see the West being more unified in its response to China. I think there is an opportunity here. Donald Trump was very hawkish on China, but his America first foreign policy, he was uniquely unsuited to the values element of this struggle. I hope that you can see the West realising that a Chinese-dominated world would be an uncomfortable place for, for pretty much every Western country and acting more in concert to push back against China. I mean, there is still time if the West acts together. But the danger is that, you know, that Western countries conspire temporary economic or strategic advantage to them in, you know, in, in being best friends with China, and therefore don't take that course. But I think the West is beginning to wake up to this. I also think the West is is lucky in this respect. I mean, that, that China mishandles situations. There are lots of Western areas of disagreement on China. One of them is not the question of the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. For the Chinese to choose to slap these sanctions on and, and raise the salience of that issue in diplomatic terms is, I think, a strategic blunder. And I think they are also making a mistake by being so openly aggressive in their actions. I think that is making it harder and harder for the West. I mean, the West, I think, in a post-Cold War world, the West had no, no, had, didn't really have the energy or determination for another kind of great power struggle. So it, it was inclined to interpret China's actions in a fairly benign way. Xi is making that impossible. And just finally, I mean, do you feel like you've sort of had the support of the British government in the wake of your sanctions? Well, actually, yes, I do. I think what's interesting about this is that 
if you go back, as I said, to late 2019, we were still languishing in the kind of last bits of the uh, golden era of view of China. And if you, if you think of where we are now, we've come a long way. So while we are out, the government has become very critical of China, Magnitsky sanctions in place, real statements just falling short of genocide statements about what's going on in Xinjiang, real issues over Hong Kong. They've trashed that treaty. The British government is now beginning to be much clearer about that. All these things tell you that we've moved a long way in our relationship. Uh, and it will be to the detriment of China that that's the case. So have the British government and this final element of that to say the um, the so-called uh, sanctioning of people like me. Yeah, the prime minister, you know, in his own initiative called us in what those of us we could gather together uh, to get in at short notice to come in and have a photograph with him on Saturday. It was his idea. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And he made a very strong statement about it, which I don't think he might have been inclined to do a year before. The scales are dropping from people's eyes. You know, you still got institutional bits in the foreign office and the treasury. You are still desperate about the trade. But I think the reality for us is now our job, and this is where I think it's really, really important. I think the UK has a phenomenal role to play here. I'm not starry-eyed. I don't think the UK is the most powerful nation on earth and is going to suddenly rise again. I do, however, think that we stand in a peculiar place. We have networks of influence through the Commonwealth, which represent a huge amount of those areas that uh, surround them in the South China Seas and across into the Pacific. We have huge relationships and influence in America with Australia and New Zealand. We are in a time zone that allows us to encompass Europe, even though we've left the European Union, to try and co coax them on to be a little more assertive. So we have a chance to take forward this process of saying, now we need to have a common purpose in the free world to deal with China, to tell them that you can't go on like this because it's going to cost you. And, you know, our joining of the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a very big move. And they're desperate to have us on because they know we'll bring the Americans on board with it, which is exactly critical. And now all of a sudden, China will have succeeded in pulling together the free world because they behave really badly. And we can make that happen. If we make that happen, I think, you know, maybe even who knows, President Xi himself uh, will be looked upon differently by the Chinese Communist Party as having wrecked their whole policy of actually trying to gain potency. Uh, he's actually brought everybody else into a position uh, uh, to be able to stop that. And that would have been a major error on his part. James Nian, thank you very much. Next, a new Netflix series, Murder Among the Mormons, looks at the serial forger and later murderer Mark Hoffman, who made up documents about the religion's origins. In this week's magazine, Damien Thompson, host of the Spectator's Holy Smoke podcast, says it's time for Mormons to take a serious look at their history. James Holt, Associate Professor of Religious Education at the University of Chester and a Mormon himself, also writes in the magazine. He says that Mormons really aren't that different to other religions. To discuss, Damien and James join me now. Damien, in this week's magazine, you write about a new Netflix series called Murder Among the Mormons. Can you tell our listeners about it? It's a gripping three-part documentary about, I think, one of the most fascinating criminal figures of the 20th century, though he's still alive, Mark Hoffman, perhaps the most brilliant forger in history. He was a Mormon who secretly hated the church, he was an atheist, and he forged these documents designed to deeply embarrass the Mormon Church was very paranoid about its, and with good reason, about its early years. And then when he thought he was going to be found out, he murdered two people. So he's an absolute psychopath. 
What isn't mentioned in the Netflix story, and I think should have been, is that he's so brilliant that he forged an Emily Dickinson poem, not only the paper and the, and the writing, but he wrote the poem, and it was acclaimed by Emily Dickinson world experts. So the guy is one of the greatest forgers in history, complete psychopath. But the fact is that he knew very well that the church in which he grew up had an awful lot of very, very shameful secrets relating to their founder, Joseph Smith, and indeed Brigham Young, and indeed the first generation of Mormons, who engaged in a polygamy that was nothing less than the wholesale abuse verging on rape of vulnerable women. And although this has been known about really since it happened, and certainly most Americans probably have some idea of it, a lot of LDS members who are very, it sounds patronizing, but very good people, don't really know about it. It's only in the last decade that the Latte Saints have been a little bit more frank about this horrible man. James, you also write about Mormonism in this week's magazine. And, and as a Mormon yourself, can you explain to listeners how you see the religion? Yeah, for me, it's a way of life that I've lived for probably 30 years or so now since I was a teenager. And it's a way for me to draw close to my saviour, Jesus Christ, to understand my relationship with God and all of the things that kind of go along with being religious, really, the, the observances and so on. And while I recognise some of the things uh, that Damien talks about and and the particular spin that is placed on them, if you like, or the particular interpretation is very different than what's understood in the church. I'm not denying that polygamy took place because it did. And there are just different spins that I think as a member of the faith, I feel as though, yes, Joseph Smith was a flawed person, but at the same time, I also believe that he was a prophet of God. And through his teachings and through the teachings of a living prophet today, I can learn more about my saviour and how to live my life today as well. Can you explain a little bit about the relationship between Mormonism and Christianity for listeners who might not be aware? Yeah, it's very interesting because I grew up an Anglican till mid-teens and then I became a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, and I think I remained a Christian, but there is a debate, I guess, within Christianity as to whether we are or not. And that's normally based around the Trinity in the sense that we believe that the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are three separate beings and not homoousius, as the Nicene Creed says. But for me, because I follow the example of Jesus Christ, because I try to live his principles, for me, I'm very much a Christian. But it's been a bit of a, a pendulum swing between how we are viewed by other Christians. Some people are very happy to accept us as Christians because of some of the things that I've mentioned, whereas other people would say, well, no, you're far too new or you reject the Trinity or so on. So it's a complicated relationship, I would say. Your church was founded by a man who wrote a scripture based on an utter fiction, and this is the sort of second charge, that there were huge civilizations in Mesoamerica populated by Israelites, no evidence for it whatsoever, no archaeological evidence, no DNA evidence. I am getting a little tired of what seems to be the absolute set-in-stone Mormon strategy of deflecting difficult questions that I raised about Joseph Smith. I mean, mm -hmm. awful questions about Joseph Smith, who was an awful man. 
deflecting it by you know so these theological discussions about oh it get, helps me to get closer to Jesus Christ or whatever. Fine. Why this? ridiculous story of massive Mesoamerican civilizations which couldn't have existed is more plausible than Anglicanism is your business, I suppose. But what I think is really shocking is the extent to which the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is enormously wealthy, worth about $300 billion, has attempted successfully to throw a smokescreen over the appalling sexual predatory behaviour of your prophet, seer and revelator, who not only concocted the Book of Mormon, well, neither here nor there. Lots of the Old Testament isn't true, probably, and bits of the New Testament could be questioned, but it's just made out of whole cloth. But then bought some papyri from a travelling mummy exhibition and translated them into the Book of Abraham. But unfortunately for him, they were later discovered and translated by that stage. You okay, could, is there, a, is there so a question coming at some point? My, my point is, are you not profoundly troubled by the mountain of historical evidence that Joseph Smith did foul things to women? He told teenage girls that their spiritual salvation rested on basically them marrying him. He slept with a whole load of these women, slept with them, as the Mormon church has admitted. He broke up marriages. And he told the members of the church that his revelation from God that that Mormons should um, be monogamous, and at the same time he had God knows how many wives about which he was lying. And if there's one thing that is constant in the life of Joseph Smith, it's lie after lie after lie. James, I'll let you respond to that. <laughs> Thank you. Now, with regards to the polygamy, then yes, the church accepts and teaches that polygamy happened between 1830-ish and 1890. And Joseph Smith himself had numerous wives. Now, for Joseph Smith, and as far as I'm aware, there were two different types of marriage. There were marriages for time and eternity, which, as you suggested, were sexual, sexual relationships as well. And there were some that were for eternity only. And that was a way of binding families together. Now, it may not be something that I understand completely or even approve of and wouldn't want that to happen within my life. But at no point, as far as I'm aware, were families split up because these wives, who were only sealed for eternity and there was no sexual relationship there, continued to live with their husband, to whom they were married on this earth or for, for this life. And so there's different things that are there. Now, as for the predatory behaviour and as to the other things that, that you've suggested, Damien, I would say that those are things that have been portrayed by people at the time and people since as a negative view of the church and, and kind of reading things into other things. And then we move on, and, and obviously we may want to come back to that, but then we come on to the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon for me is the Word of God, is scripture to go alongside the Bible to help me understand a relationship with God. Yes, I believe that it was written originally on the American continent somewhere, between 600 BC and 400 AD. Now, I suppose in some ways that is a matter of faith, that I believe it is the word of God. Now, as you say, there's no evidence, you suggest in your argument that there is no evidence that that is the case. But from my perspective, there's no evidence that it's not the case. And, and maybe this is where we have to agree that it's a matter of faith, just as it's a matter of faith that the Bible is the word of God, that the Book of Mormon is the word of God. But certainly the influence that those books have had on my life and the way that I live and the way that I strive to talk to other people 
and treat other people and draw close out are unimaginable, really. When it comes to the uh, civilizations in the New World, well, it's a preposterous story. It's an embarrassing story. But if it's a matter of faith, that's fine. The problem is that Brigham Young University teaches it as history. And Mormons are not told, particularly you know, Mormons living in the closed society of Salt Lake City, are not told, well, this is something we believe in a sort of mystical sense or whatever. They're told there were these big civilizations and you know, we will find the archaeological evidence for it. I'll give you another example. Mormonism has been very successful in converting people in Polynesia, for example, by telling them the absolute untruth that they are descended from Hebrews who are on the American continent, which, of course, they never were. DNA evidence has now proved that that's absolute nonsense. There's no, there's no genetic link between... Well, I mean, where do we start? There were never any Jews on the American continent anyway before Columbus. Yes, although I have mentioned that it's a matter of faith whether it's the word of God we do view it as a historical document, not as one that perhaps I'm not going to teach in, a, in an American history class, and, but at the same time, it's something that I do believe happened. And there were Nephites, there were Lamanites. And as to being descendants of Israel or of Hebrews, it's part of Christian teaching, and it's a part of um, our teaching as Latter-day Saints, that when people become Christian or become Latter-day Saints, they are either literally or adopted in to the House of Israel. And so that's the understanding today for me. James, I'm just going to finish with one quick question to you, which is a point that you make in your piece, which is that the Mormons are often portrayed as, as you say, weird and cult-like in a way that other religions aren't. Why do you think that is? Um, I don't actually know. I mean, Damien may have come across certain things and, and talked about those things. I, I have no idea. Cult has become, although it has a specific sociological definition in the study of religion, which Damien would probably be able to explain far better than I could, it's become much more as, of a kind of a hiss and a byword and a pejorative term to just describe religious beliefs and practices that don't kind of meet the normal. That's my impression. Some of the things that we're accused of as cult-like behaviour would be found in other churches and other religions around the world. But I, th I think it's just a misunderstanding of who we are and what we do. But obviously, as, as has been shown in this discussion, there are different ways to understand who we are and what we do. I agree completely there. I was, I, for many years, I was on the board of Inform, which is a Home Office-funded advisory body on minority religions. And I used to get very, very angry when groups were... Um, you must have become permanently angry, but I must say reading this stuff has been <laughs> awful. But, you know, this word cult is thrown around stupidly. No Mormonism isn't a cult. And it's also overwhelmingly made up of good people who've contributed a lot to American society. But the time has come when it needs to face up to the fact that it was founded by a sex abuser, a group of sex abusers, and that it has, as a church, probably told more lies in the course of its history than any other body. And I think we've reached a stage where younger, educated Mormons are beginning to look at the evidence and say, and say we can't believe this. Now, they're not apostatizing at the moment because it's a, it costs a lot. It, you know, it's a big thing to leave the church, if, particularly if you're in, in, in Utah. But I think the time will come soon when educated Mormons look at this and say, I'm sorry, the truth is staring us in the face, and the truth comes from those women who are abused. 
It's just that I would say that that the church was founded by revelation from God to Joseph Smith, so as a prophet of God. So it's a very different way of viewing the founding of the church. And I would suggest that I may be slightly educated in some way, and even facing these discussions, it is still a way that brings me closer to Christ and a way to understand the way that I live my life as well. So again, it's different, I think, different perspectives. Thank you, Damien, and thank you, James. And finally, it's Easter this weekend, but how many of us see it as a religious holiday? In this week's magazine, the writer James Mumford says that being spiritual but not religious somewhat misses the point and means that you miss out on the chance to be transformed. To explain, James joins me now alongside our commissioning editor, Mary Wakefield. James, in this week's magazine, you write about the problems with the concept of what you refer to as being spiritual but not religious. Can you start by explaining to listeners what you think this phrase means? Yeah, so spiritual but not religious took off with dating apps in the early 2000s. And it was a way of describing a sensibility that was open to things beyond the natural to paranormal experiences and the supernatural and the transcendent but was very much against and not being rooted in religious communities and in the institutional and organised religion which it was departing from. And Mary, what do you make of this new trend towards people saying that they are spiritual but not religious? I think, as James says, it's been with us a while, hasn't it, James? It's been sort of around since, when was it? Since the advent of Alcoholics Anonymous and... Yeah, it does go back further to Bill Wilson in the 1942, I think, was the first mention of the phrase. Cause it, so it does go back and then took off with dating profiles. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the interesting thing is, to most people, it makes perfect sense, the thought of being spiritual without religious. You think, oh, I can have all the good stuff, the relationship without any of the nasty ritual and the horrid history of, you know, whatever church... But what, I think what James was saying was that, in fact, there's a great downside. In fact, you lose, you know, I would say sort of 80, 90 percent of what you gain from religion by losing the religious bit and keeping the kind of spiritual bit. But, James, you said you grew up more spiritual but not religious, as it were, didn't you? Yes, I was brought up in a, um, in a sort of low evangelical meeting in an auditorium of a school every Sunday morning. My mother, it was said, put the fun back into fundamentalism. But what was interesting is that even though we were committed to following a sacred text and we you know, had rituals such as um, the Eucharist and, and baptism and we um, you know, weren't, weren't that organised, but it, it was definitely, you know, we saw ourselves as participating with the institutional body of Christ on Sunday mornings. Despite all of that, we were very hesitant to say that we were religious. We would always say that we were spiritual but not religious because I think we wanted to avoid the religiosity and the idea of lifeless liturgy or going through the motions when your heart's not in it. And that was the desire. But I think looking back, there was a mistake in that in that it wasn't owning its space and we weren't loving our ground and loving our territory. And as you say, embracing um, the 80, 90% of things that are so precious about belonging to particular religious communities. But don't you think it is a quite a good recruiting tool? I mean, you can draw people in by saying, hey, you know, we're not so religious. And then the religion itself, if true, will get its hooks into them. Yeah, I do. That's exactly what I think it was. I think it was a recruiting and a tool and a marketing ploy. But I think that it ends up catering to a kind of spiritual consumerism, which in the end, ultimately, people aren't satisfied by. Right. 
Mary, one of the points that James makes is that the spiritual but not religious pride pride themselves on being seekers rather than dwellers. But right now, actually, what lots of people are searching for is sort of that sense of dwelling. Do, do you think the religious aspect gives us that sense of dwelling? Yes, I wouldn't have said so 15 years ago or so, but yes, I do. Because I'm a, I'm a Catholic convert and there's lots of things about Catholic religion and ritual that would have seemed crazy to me a couple of decades ago. But now they kind of make sense. But I wouldn't have chosen them, you know, when I was seeking. It would have seemed insane. But as a place to actually dwell, they slowly begin to make sense and sort of reveal themselves. Or or maybe I'm brainwashed. But, um, <laughs> but, but yes, yes, I suppose it's a place you can't, you don't choose, do you, James? You know, you don't choose everything about the religion. It reveals itself to you gradually. Whereas if you're just, if everything's about your own experience, then kind of it's just about you and there's nothing else to learn. Yes, exactly. And I think the other danger about spirituality part of spiritual experience is that it trades on what I call a disastrously romantic idea of religious experience. And what I mean by that is that with the sort of sense that there has to be this intense personal connection all the time, the danger is that you feel that when that's lacking, when you say the mass and you're not bowled over by a bolt of lightning or hear Jesus speaking to you like St. Paul did on the road to Damascus. When that doesn't happen, you feel like, oh, this can't possibly be true. This isn't legitimate. There aren't reasons for me to participate in this. And so the spirituality part of it and the insistence on this connection with the higher power the whole time actually creates false expectations about what day-to-day religious life looks like. Yeah, and I suppose many of the great saints have also felt great absence of God, haven't they? You know, look at Mother Teresa who felt, you know, nothing for 10 years and yet carried on doing the good work, kind of looking after the poorest people in the world. If your faith is located in your feelings, you'd just stop when the feelings stopped, wouldn't you? Exactly. And that's what Easter's about, you know, and um, Christ's um, experience of the absence of God yeah. um, on the cross was is a vital part about religious non-experience, as yeah, it were. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's vital that you, what you're sustained by and not is not that emotionalism, but a reasons and a thinking and his practice, like you say. Yeah. I was interested in James' idea of also the grooves of life. Like there's lots of times you don't want to do something, but you do it because it's part of the practice. And then you... Um, then you start to sort of get into it and understand why. I mean, we, we understand that with other parts of life, don't we? You know, like going to work or being a parent, that you don't have to feel like it all the time. I wonder why with religion you feel like you do have to feel it all the time. Yeah, that's an excellent point that I I, I, I should have made more of. But yeah, I think there was a mantra I heard growing up as well that, um, you know, faith isn't about rules, it's about relationship. And that was very much a, an evangelical insistence upon the personal relationship with Christ and being born again and 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 there's good warrant for speaking the Paul speaks about the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me so he speaks in very personal terms but i think the the problem is what's being denied which is the rules part of it because you know rules we sort of picture as being these arbitrary strictures that are there to are foisted upon us to frustrate our flourishing but actually you know, we're, we're looking for guidance. We're looking for manuals on how to do life and those grooves, as it were. And, you know, we don't have all the answers. But when we see this choice of tradition or this, this inheritance that we, that we step into suddenly starts to make sense, like you say, over time when you, when you start to uh, practice and to enter into those historic grooves. 
Mary, does this concept of spiritual but not religious exist within the Catholic Church? Obviously, James is talking about the kind of evangelical aspects of Christianity. Have you noticed it at all in Catholicism or is it just, is there not really? I'm a very bad Catholic and I don't know much about um, church history, but I would probably less so just because, you know, the rules are more overt and it's got a pretty bad reputation in many ways in terms of, you know, the history of the oh, church. I think that's a huge strength of Catholicism. Um, you know where you are with to... Catholicism. You've got to yeah. be crazy to join up, so we're all crazy. Yeah, I think that there's a there's a clarity around that, and I don't think it's necessarily oppressive. I think it's one of the great attractions of Roman Catholicism. James, when you're kind of observing, you know, the rules of your church, of your faith, are there ones that don't make any sense to you? Are there rules you observe even though... Quite often you're thinking, I don't know, I don't know quite why I'm doing this. I don't currently believe in it, but I might at some point. Um, yeah, I mean, all the way from chastity as a teenager through to infant baptism, there are always times when you think, really, does this, does this particular element or tenet of the, of the faith make sense? But you start to sort of think that it's not a blind submission to an authority. It's what David Bromwich calls a, ch a choice of it. Tradition is a choice of inheritance. Yeah. But there is a kind of collective wisdom or what G.K. Chesterton called the democracy of the dead that, that, that makes you think, well, hold on a minute. Maybe I, I don't have all of the answers. Yeah. And maybe there, there is something to following a way that has been imp so impressed itself upon history uh, and has changed so many lives that maybe in in submitting to this there might even be freedom yeah and that's it for this episode if you've enjoyed the podcast why not subscribe to the spectator with our 12 weeks for 12 pounds offer you can read everything we've talked about and if you subscribe now we'll even throw in a bottle of our very own spectator gin absolutely free just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash gin thank you for listening do join us again next week and we hope you have a very happy easter mm -hmm.